0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem.
1: This is my James Baldwin moment, you know. I love this country, and it is precisely because I love it that I criticized it so searingly. And we should, because we shouldn't accept it as it is.
0: My guest today is Gina Athena Ulysses, professor of anthropology at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. She has a new book entitled Because When God Is Too Busy Haiti, Me, and the World.
1: There are pieces in there that I wrote when I was very, very young, two things that I wrote just a year before the book was put together.
0: Gina is a feminist, artist, anthropologist, activist, and self described post Zora interventionist. Her creative projects lie within the intersections of geopolitics, historical representations, and the dailiness of Black diasporic life. Her creative projects lie within the intersections of geopolitics, historical representations, and the dailiness of Black diasporic conditions. Her latest work, Remix Ode to Rebel's Spirit, involves conversations with ghosts roving the British Museum. Gina Athena Ulysses, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. You have long called for new narratives on Haiti. Could you tell me a little bit about some of these old narratives that you think need to be changed?
1: Well, um, I think those old narratives are everywhere. Um, They are, especially in the public sphere um, and what we see in the media, they are part of policy. They are (laughs) they are basically the way that in popular imagination people tend to think of Haiti, right? So this poet Jean-Claude Martineau had said Haiti has a famous last name, quote unquote, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, right? It says nothing about the amount of wealth that's in the country. Um, because what's interesting is to have that, the extremity of the poverty, you also have extreme wealth, but we never hear about um, that part. So the this idea of new narratives really came from a disgust, because I've been living with it for quite a long time and have studied it all as well, of seeing these very simple ideas uh, Being the sole way that Haiti is talked about, although I think in the last couple of years, things are changing and a lot of it has to do with social media and the fact that once these stereotypes are out there, there are people from all walks of life with access who can point to how those perceptions are limited are archaic and are damaging. So uh so I think the thing about these old narratives really we're more familiar with them than we are with new and I tend to be a bit cautious about not giving them more airtime. They've had airtime for over several hundreds of years, right? Like so that to think of Haiti, you know, sort of like this magic island, voodoo and the reality of it is that in Haiti, especially of late, you know, there are as many Protestants as there are Catholics, um, and a number of folks have been converting for a very long time because of the role that missionaries continue to play in the country, especially as non-government organizations that are a parallel state system, right? So, so there's so much going on in terms of it is something that's taken for granted. Um, you know, this idea of sort of very poor country um, and we know less about how it got that way that it is that way. And as a result, Haitians themselves are reducible to their conditions.
0: And so let's not focus too much on these old narratives. I mean, uh, let's let's go to some of these new or potentially new narratives. And, I, you know, I, I guess reading your, your new book, it was it's it's really quite a journey to go through between all of the poetry, the self-reflection, the sort of political narratives, but also all of these images that are sort of interspersed throughout. Is is this your attempt at sort of constructing a new narrative?
1: Actually, no. Uh <laughs> I didn't I certainly didn't think of it that way. I call this book my uh my postmortem. It's its like a forensic analysis, right? It's a project whereby after spending years and years and years and years thinking through certain things and issues and having written some of these pieces, there are pieces in there that I wrote when I was very, very young, to things that I wrote just a year before the book was put together. So, it really is this project in which I meditated, right, to some degree on these narratives and painstakingly and lyrically and unapologetically point how these images have come to being and then presenting my own images without commentary, right? Because that was really important to me that, The photographs in there not have titles, not be explained, so that images could stand on their own, foreshadowing or even shadowing, right, those narratives. Because where do we go by default when we're thinking of certain things, Um, the way we make order of things in the world? um, We go to default zone. So... To go to default zone looking at some of these photographs while I if you're reading what I've said will certainly make you think critically about things. And I think the whole point is the lyrical meditation that is meant was meant to inspire deeper thinking and feeling.
0: I was very fascinated with the the sort of critique on Anthropology. I mean, you are a professor of anthropology, um, but it seems like your book was also very critical of of the field of anthropology itself.
1: Yes, absolutely, Uh, as we should always be critical of things that we love. This is my James Baldwin moment, you know? I love this country, and it is precisely because I love it that I criticized it so searingly, and we should, because we shouldn't accept it as it is. I mean, I think the thing that's clear for me in terms of this critique of anthropology is because I know the history of anthropology. I know that this is the discipline that was more or less created to make sense out of scientific racism and to uh, exploit the labor of some folks who were deemed to be inferior precisely because that, not, that perception of them as inferior would allow uh, to subjugate them. And it's the same thing with empire building. So, you know, anthropology to me uh, it, as a discipline has a history that it has to reckon with. Um, I chose it. In part, because it was also the discipline that gave me a sense of what Michelle Wolf Curio calls a moral optimism, a way of thinking about the world. Because if you do that work, you will get to understand that ultimately we're all complex beings who are affected by social, economic and geopolitical forces. Um, And what we know who we are is learned. So that's like a beautiful thing to me. You know, there's the whole range of what it means to be able to conduct research and then being able to sort of present it to people in so many different ways. So anthropology made me love research, also didn't like it as much and and and, and you know, because it has some tough parts to it in terms of doing field work. But it made made me appreciate knowledge, made me appreciate difference, made me understand things as social, right? And not just personal, right? And as structural. So so of course I'm critical of it. Um, And I'm critical of it right in the middle of it, right? So I think the thing is what it means to have that lens, that sort of searing critique Now at my age and what it meant when I was a graduate student when it was passed, I felt like it was literally killing me. And I think that's what comes through in the book. Right. It's sort of this idea of anthropology incubating racism, um, which is a line in one of the poems, which I really like. Um, And it did. You know, if, if you look into the history of the discipline, its emergence and its various its role over the years, That's that that is what you find. But then at the same time, there's been some pushback. Right. There were people in the discipline who understood, who saw the limits of the discipline, who tried and did work to expand it so that this idea of, quote unquote, otherness that we are too intimate with um, has been you know, challenged and, and and sort of paved the way for people like me and people who came before me to do the kind of work that allows us to see our shared humanity, those of us who are capable of seeing that, because not all of us are.
0: So you have this beautiful line in the book as well. You say, why do you think so many black women in anthropology turn towards the arts? And so it made me think, Is is the turning towards the art is this a way to overcome not only the 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 racism in the field of anthropology but also the the as you said the the sort of focus on science you know the scientification of this very social field i mean are arts sort of this way to get over that
1: well it's not getting over it it's really about thinking through what it means to to see this in tandem, right? This, Because there's a whole gendered, and there's a class and race aspect to thinking about knowledge. And there's a way it's feminized if it's artistic, right? And if it's scientific, then it's more you know, masculine, it's more rigorous, it's more objective and so forth. And we know that objectivity is hogwash. We do know that. Um, one's position influences how it is that they see things and what they do about these things. Um so I the thing about that comment really it was an homage I mean because it's from that poem homage to those lollards before me of black women like uh Zora Neale Hurston like Katherine Dunham Irene, um Irene Diggs and others um Favey Harrison Ruth Behar, women who had an artistic impulse right who had were pursuing anthropology and the further back you go the tendency wanted was they chose the arts especially back then when it was even more difficult for black women to be in the academy and 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 and, and thrive right so this idea that to be black one couldn't be one well first of all you're a native anthropologist right um and and Meaning, always a subject, right? This is this is part of the the the, the questioning there too. Um, what happens when all you when you've always been a subject of a discipline, right? Like you you're the ones that gets to be studied. So what are you doing here, studying, right? Um, you know, what does the native, quote unquote, you know, and I put that in big big quotes, have to offer a discipline that's sort of premised upon this idea of otherness and. Um, which is something that the world is highly economically and socially invested in. Uh, So the thing with the arts to me was always about not having to choose head over heart, right? It's like that visceral versus the cerebral. I mean, I'm not a split person. I've, I've been made to be split when you go through graduate school experience trying to get a PhD. The whole point is... You know you're going to eventually become a white dude. I mean, because that was what it was like back then. uh, Because that's part of what the aspiration is, right? You're going to wear tweed someday. I'm just kind of making a joke, but but the reality of it is that not all of us operate that way, right? And and so then the expectation is that. Feelings will be put aside because you're going to be this sort of objective scholar type person. Um, and that the feeling is where the arts tend to go. Right. So there's um, I think Lani Guinier was the person whose memoir. She came to Michigan when I was there and, and gave a talk about um Becoming a Gentleman is the title of her book about having gone to law school, right? Because the whole process was to sort of socialize you into a particular kind of being. And it's not any different with with anthropology. So uh, the thing for me is I was always an artist. I went into um, grad school abandoning, if you will, dreams of being a singer and being a rock star, right? Like, I mean, I, I had you know, all these, you know, happy, like, you know, MTV generation type. Woo! And then it's like, and then I make a joke. And I did the next best thing. I became an academic. Um, And then now all I am is an artist. Um, And, you know, and I was able to sort of, let myself try to do that for as long as I could and we've reached our saturation point. I'm full on artist right now. It's been, I've been re-emerging since I you know, I've been here working and and the arts is where it's it's my spirit is at most peace there. Mm-hmm.
0: Would you consider yourself an anthropologist?
1: Of course. Yeah. That's not a
0: question. That's <laughs> not even
1: a that's not a question. <laughs> what are you saying, Will? <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry.
1: Because if we take that as the question, then we go back to the split of the cerebral and the visceral, right? right? Right. And I don't buy into that. I understand only too well the function of disciplines and their gender, genderization as a tool of academic uh, institutions. I know what it does. I understand why they exist but i like to say no subject lives their lives along disciplinary lines you know so when i come into a room when i'm taking a breath right now i'm not saying <gasps> I'm having an anthropological breath. This is the artistic (laughs) breath, right? Nobody's split that way any more than I'm having a biological experience while we're talking and I'm going to be having an economic one while we're talking. That's not true. That's not what those things are functioning to do. They're meant to map out a way of thinking, how ideas have developed over time. It's not, it doesn't map onto the subject Um, A human subject, a plant subject, quite in the same way. That's a function of the academy. And I think it's important that I be really clear about that. So I, you know, I I now say I'm an artist, anthropologist, activist. Right. And and I put the artist first because it really is where I've always resided and and I'm done. I'm done pretending that's not where I am anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting. uh, I mean, there seems to be certain parallels uh, to these old narratives on Haiti that you earlier described that were so focused on, I guess, economic issues of poverty, right? That, That they didn't see the wealth. They didn't see all these other things that Haiti was. And they just focused in and sort of segmented out this one particular issue of the economic, um, limitation, economic, you know, I guess in the capitalist system, not so much money. And that was the only way it was sort of seen.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's a bit more complex than just economic limitation because it's so much of it is about blackness. Right. Um, and the way to think it through is, you know, if we start thinking about, development narratives, for example, right? Haiti needs to be developed because it's poor, but no one talks about the fact that how he got that poor, nor do we talk about the fact that, you know, 200 and so years ago, it was the pearl of the Antilles because it was France's, you know, most profitable colony. So the thing about, you know, the connection between race and economic ideas, right, Um, and um, self-determination and self-making, these are all intertwined. And, you know, as most people who are Haiti files would tell you, it goes back to the Haitian Revolution, and I've written about this as well, whereby, you know, this small little, you know, country in the Caribbean actually revolted against the U.S. European superpowers of the time, and managed to defeat the French, the British, and the Spanish, and declared, um, you know, Haiti a republic, a free black republic, where slavery was abolished, right? So so I think the thing about that, it, it's for me, we can't talk about... Um, the way Haiti is understood in popular imagination and portrayed without going back to that moment, not so much to romanticize it, but to point out the significance of it, not just as an historical moment, but as a moment of intervention in terms of understanding the rights of man. You know what I mean? So it's like, in terms of any attempt to try to understand. Uh, The concept of man as free from a European standpoint that completely bypasses the Haitian Revolution and its significance is ignoring the fact that the French Revolution and the American Revolution both kept slavery intact. It was the Haitian Revolution that actually abolished slavery and declared all men, women, all men, all all beings um, free. So so the significance of that, and for me, it's been kind of wonderful to see, especially in this past year, two years, how people are quick to know on social media, right? Like, they're like, wait, you don't know about the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and it's important that, that that needs to be as well known as the French, as the American Revolution, because it is of that level of significance.
0: I actually want to go back into this issue of social media. I mean, that's very interesting. So you're saying that on social media, there there's this space available for people to really discuss the Haitian Revolution, which which is not being discussed in perhaps certain school curricula, for instance. Um, so can you tell me more about this? Like, how you know how is this happening? What does it look like? Well,
1: no, it's less that it's less that it's a space for discussion. It it what it is. It's you know when things do come up in the media and they do right in mainstream media that just reinforces the older narratives there are more people with knowledge who now have access to some platforms who will pipe in and say you're missing the historical component here you you see what i'm saying Mm -hmm. so in a good example is 45, I do not say the name, comment <laughs> about, you know, shithole. People were like on top of it right away. They were just like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Right? And it doesn't mean that those comments don't have grounding, they don't reinforce ideas, but the quickness to have a response that tries to set the record clearer. And point to our tendency to live with and be in a state of historical amnesia is really important, right? Especially since, as you noted, school curricula tend to not have these things, right? So, so it's like these are opportunities that I think um, social media allows, um, and I think we're also living in times where that are dangerously frightening for lots of reasons, including a return back to a silencing of difference, that's, that's, that's something that we all have to fight against. And as you know, I talk about silence all the time, having sort of grown up under a dictatorship, you know, and I said I have a very difficult relationship with silence um, because I grew up being socialized to understand silence as a commodity. Now, I did not have that language, as a, you know, young, young person. But now that is exactly what it is. It is something that you trade, you know, for safety. It is something that you trade um, as you live with horror. Um, So, you know, but I also grew up understanding it is something that you fight against accepting, right? Mm -hmm. So the significance of what it means when, your voice, right? You know, um, I often say that you know there is silence is just another structure of power that I refuse to recreate because that's what it is. It's a structure of power, um, and we can decide whether or not we will abide by it, and and what those terms are, and they're going to be different for anyone. Uh, but when we're living, when we're living in times where what it means to speak out is significant one does not bypass
0: that so how would you describe the the structure of power of silence in today's world
1: well i mean i think you know there are ways that it's brutal <laughs> um i think because people police each other people are less kind to one another i mean this whole facebook thing that's happening I find it very I mean I saw people get radicalized and then but you know what I said? That beast was in there. It wasn't implanted by Facebook. It woke it up. Mm. It woke it up. Like that tendency to be insular, that tendency to be fearful, that tendency to not be curious about other people. That's what I'm calling the beast, right? Like those sort of like small mindedness was there and it got stoked. Right. That's the silencing in a sense, because people in some ways have become so self-absorbed that we don't see someone else. Um, And I'm being kind because I'm not really that person Um, or, you know, that it's okay to become so inhumane. Um, I'm frightened, honestly, genuinely an adult frightened by a lack of humanity on 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 our parts, that's a form of silencing to not um, to become so comfortable or be able to turn away from horror. And it's horror that's been going on for a very long time. It's not just now, it's not just since two thousand and sixteen. It is that we live in a world where we're so individually minded or we only think about our families. And I'm a completely different kind of person, and I realize, And, you know, I've been struggling with how to sort of manage the fact that I feel like a fractal. Right. I said there's something personal about fractals. I'm in the world and of the world. So when you say, oh, how are you doing? How are things going? These days, you know, I'm always like all things considered because I may be fine, my family be fine, but the world isn't fine. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yes, I'm still able to be happy and and have joy. But geez, the world is not fine. So 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 saying that to me is 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 a breaking away of the silence because, you know, the person who's right next to you is like, how do you build um, your sense of community in um, the world and what does that mean? And so for me, and that is the thing about about Haiti in terms of what's been going on there and, and then, you know, what happened with Matthew and Puerto Rico Oh, well, well, we had an example in Haiti. It's sort of like following up with what happened then. You know what I'm saying? So it's like we ha- we are more connected as human beings. We are more connected as uh, social actors. We are more connected as agents than we've ever been. But unless we are conscious and conscientious about the fact that there these connections are there, there's a lot of um, imbalance in the way that we are connected in the world. Um, the, you know, so I tend to talk about positionality, and it's there in the poetry and it's there in the work, precisely for that reason. Um, having done some work in Haiti, I was recently at a conference where I spoke about, and I said, you know, it's important that we note the privileges we we have of being in the diaspora. Versus what it means to be on the ground in Haiti, where life conditions for some people is so dire, right? So that, you know, this idea then, oh, you're Haitian. I'm like, but there are so many different ways for us to be that. And we're not all the same. There's a lot of differences between and amongst us. Um, The thing is, how aware are we of those? And how do we make sense out of those? And how do we connect with each other as a community, given those?
0: Yeah, it seems like you are really living this idea of relationality. Where I mean, I hear that term, you know, relationality in a lot of academic work, but you actually seem to be living it. And it almost it it reminds me of your subtitle of your book, Haiti, Me and the World, as if they are all inseparable. It is that fractal as you were saying.
1: I think it's both a good thing, but it's also the bane of my existence.
0: <laughs> because
1: You know, when you're living in an individualistic world and you don't want to sort of move through the world that way, you're not on the same page as a lot of people, right? Um, Because part of it for me is always thinking, well, what would it mean? What kind of impact? What else would this do? And not just think of myself as a solitary figure. You can't. You can't. You can't. We've we've destroyed the planet. Um, we've destroyed sociality, you know, with all that social media. Because I teach, or used to teach, anyway, and I um, I see it. I see it in young people who where we have to go back to basic, you know, to sort of entice them and try to inspire them to relate to each other as human beings without the screen that divides them. Because one of the things that our attachment to um, the screen has done is for those who did not grow up without the screen, we know how to relate. But the ones who grew up with the screen, it is an intermediary. It is the thing that's between the I mean, I see it and I'm just, it breaks my heart as a human being to see, to have, you know, to be, to have been in a classroom where, I would just talk about what it means to be human and connect, you know, and, and, and not be seen as a ludite, right? Because like, cause it's not about anti-technology. It's about what role does it play when you're not looking at each other? How are we social if you're in a room and you say what she said? And there's like 10 of you in the room and you don't know each other's names for the whole semester. That's brutal.
0: That's brutal. I've been there.
1: Yeah, you know what I mean? That Mm. inhumanity to me, to me that's, you know, and if we don't, you know, I feel like we've lost the Mm. war um, on that, but I'm not completely pessimistic about it. I remain optimistic that sociality, the social community, the communal can be reinvigorated, and in some ways, it is being reinvigorated. You know, it's so funny. Um, in my last class, I told my st- in one of my classes, I told the students, I said, you know, the most radical thing you all could do is is a potluck. They were like, what? <laughs> I said, I kid you not. And they were like, and I said, there's 27 of you with 27 different schedules. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing you can do right now is a potluck. It took them six weeks to figure it out and most of, you know, no, but the part about it was because we're all so attached to what we have to do as individuals. And then I'm like, you know, I'm from the good old days of the potluck. Somebody cooks something, you're gonna sit there, you're gonna look at each other, you're gonna talk, you're gonna just talk about bullshit, nothing that doesn't even matter, but the reality of it is you're going to connect. You're gonna disagree, it doesn't matter. You're going to be humans in a space together. And that's an important thing to, to keep fighting for. Well, not only did they like it, you know, it's like they kept meeting each other after that more.
0: <laughs> they're like, friends. So,
1: so now they're friends. Because so like, I mean, I ran into a couple of them. They were like, oh yeah, we keep meeting together. I was like, woo. Yeah, it worked. The, Amazing, yeah,
0: huh? It, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Be human to, to, to sort of fight for relationality, it's important.
0: Well, Gina Athena Ulysses, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and congratulations on your new book.
1: Oh, thank you so, so much.
0: Gina Athena Ulysses is a professor of anthropology at Wesleyan University. Her new book is entitled, Because When God is Too Busy. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest room. If you've liked what you've heard today, rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry evolved Yuval Devere, Hongzong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator. And original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Prime. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brennan, and I'll be back